T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. I'm Dave Briggs, home in Connecticut, Ross Tucker, and his raspy voice, home in Pennsylvania. I think you should sing that smelly cat song that phoebe from friends used to sing when she was a bit sick a bit hoarse and the raspy voice really worked for her tucker do you know smelly cat um i vaguely remember that uh, but i hate that show because of what that dude did to the name ross and the <laughs> image that some people have oh rachel why don't you like me? Oh, Richard. You know, that is a good that is a good question and a good debate. We were talking yeah. earlier about what we should do. I got a good one. Which TV or movie character would you do you dislike so much that if you saw the actor walking down the street, you would want to beat the shit out of them? Because that is my number one. David Schwimmer. Wow. And he's probably a, he's probably a really nice guy. Um, Great guy. He probably, he, he probably does not deserve it. But I would derive great pleasure from punching him in the face and watching his nose explode. <laughs> Resorting to violence to start on a Wednesday. Ross Tucker doesn't like friends. <laughs> Just blew my mind with all of that. Yeah, that is a hell of a discussion for a day in which we don't have huge sports news. What is the TV or movie character you would punch <laughs> in the face? I don't know if I would physically harm them the way you would like to harm David Schwimmer. But yeah, I think maybe the the character you would like to physically or verbally accost if you saw them in public. Because I don't know. I'm not jacked like you are i might get my ass kicked if i punched someone maybe not david schwimmer i can fucking take david schwimmer but this is a great discussion Yo, for another time what, what friends if, is a hey, classic hey, bro yeah what 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 if david schwimmer knows like karate or something and i don't know that and what if i what if i started shit with david schwimmer and he beat my ass that i, I would have to just quit life at that point if Ross yeah. from Friends beats you up, it's over. You're done. It's over. You're done. You're done, bro. But if you remember the episode in which he played rugby, he's either one hell of an actor or you would kick his ass with one tied, one hand tied behind your back. I think you'd be just fine against Schwimmer. Maybe against Joey, Matt LeBlanc. That might be a hell of a fight. But that is not the, the question we're asking you this morning. The question we are asking you this morning is, what would you do if you were a Houston Astros or Boston Red Sox player and, and you heard this scandal going on where they're banging trash cans to tell you what pitch is coming at the plate? What would you do? Would you participate? Would you sound the alarm? 
What if you're a pitcher and you can't honestly benefit from this and you know your fellow players are being harmed by this? You know that they don't have a fair shot out there on the mound against your team. Here's my problem with this whole scandal. Houston Astros, Boston Red Sox, and for the latest, again, Alex Cora has been fired by the Boston Red Sox. No punishment has come down from Major League Baseball yet, but of course the Houston Astros fired their GM, Jeff Lunau, and their manager, A.J. Hinch. Ross, there is almost no discussion of the freaking players here. They are grown men making tens of millions of dollars, and we're talking about GMs and managers. We should be talking about the players. We should be talking about the players that either benefited from this or did nothing. We should be using the names like Jose Altuve, Yuli Gariel, Carlos Correa, Alex Bregman, George Springer. We should use the names Mitch Moreland, Xander Bogarts, Rafael Devers, Andrew Benatendi, Jackie Bradley Jr., Mookie Betts, J.D. Martinez. We should talk more about the players, shouldn't we? And what would you do if you were one of those players and you saw that scandal going on? Um, I'd like to sit here, Dave, and say that I would not have participated and that I would have told MLB about it. I highly doubt that, though. I, I'm pretty sure I would not have alerted the authorities or told MLB. That's number one. Number two, I don't know. I might have said, no, I don't want that. But once I saw Altuve crushing homers, <laughs> that might have that might have changed things for me a little bit. I don't know. I, I mean, I I never took roids. I never took PEDs in the NFL, but they were also testing for it. Now I wouldn't have anyway, but they were testing for it. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I would have been between the uh, either participating or just not. But no way I would have turned them in. I'm ethically morally challenged. I can acknowledge that. I don't know that I could sleep at night though. I have a hard enough time sleeping. The only way I think those players could justify it is to say that everybody's doing this. We're just a little bit better at it. I think that's the explanation and reminder, Brad Lidge, the former Astros pitcher, World Series champ with the Phillies told us on the program this week that he thinks between five and 10 other teams were stealing signs, but with one form or another, no better person to ask about all of this than host at WEI. One of the guys from Ordway, Merloni and Fourier, former Boston Red Sox infielder himself, the legend Lou Merloni joining us this morning on a hump day. Lou, great to have you on the program. It's Dave Briggs. It's Ross Tucker. What would you do, bro? What would you do if you were, Seeing this stealing sign scandal going on in your dugout, would you participate? Would you not participate? Would you sound the alarm? I heard sir, what Ross was saying. Um, I'd probably participate, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, listen, when I was playing, we didn't have the video cameras that these guys have right now because of instant replay. So what we would have was just a camera feed of a game. And in the middle of games, you'd be watching early in games, you'd be watching opposing pitchers and you're trying to figure out what kind of tips he has, try to figure out what he's throwing. That was just something you did. Now, they have specific cameras in on the catchers, which is something that we didn't have. Uh, the issue is, is that, you know, if they come out and they tell you that, hey, this is illegal, we got to stop doing this, uh, would you continue to do it then? See, then I'd probably be sitting there saying, okay, now we shouldn't be doing it. But before this whole memo came out in 2018, I'd probably be right in that room helping decode everything. 
Lou, is this, is this in your mind taint the world series that the Red Sox won? You know, I think it, it, listen, it taints the whole year. There's no question about it, but when it comes to the world series, you know, if you read that report with Drellick and Rosenthal, the fact that they had an in-person league official, you know, in those rooms during the postseason, um, teams you play during that postseason, I believe, are all looking for advantages as well. I don't think it does. Once you get into that postseason, you beat those teams. You beat them up, and that was just the way it was. So, to me, when you get to the postseason, I find out that I got an in-person league official in those rooms that's not allowing us to do it, and you still go out there and win, I think that's good. But I totally understand. Listen, we're from Boston. We understand how this whole thing works. Everything is tainted in the eyes of a lot of people. And to be honest with you, a lot of Red Sox fans, they have a different feeling about this Red Sox team than they do the Patriots. They're all over them. They want Alex Cora fired. They want him banned. Meanwhile, they'll jump in front of a a train for Bill Belichick. So it is a different opinion. So I think a lot of Red Sox fans do believe that it is tainted. I just don't because I think in the postseason it was clean. Wow, that's interesting. I want to hear more about that. Where do uh, the fans, the callers rank and view the scandals now that you've had from Spygate to Deflategate to Spygate 2 and now the Alex Cora stealing sign scandal. Uh, how do they rank those and how do they react differently to them? If you can elaborate a little more on that. Red Sox fans want Alex Cora banned for baseball for life. They, wow. I, I've heard an awful lot for the last you know couple of days that he got caught cheating a memo was sent to him. He continued to cheat. It was arrogance. People lost their jobs. Games were won and lost. They affected careers, and they won championships. Alex Cora needs to go. And I asked a simple question. Are we still talking about Alex or Bill Belichick? And the response is, well, it's different. No, it's not. It's really not. But Patriots fans in this area can't face that fact. So the reality is that the Red Sox have a perception problem in the city. They are not well-liked. The players don't communicate to the media. The owner doesn't communicate to the media. The owner owns a Boston Globe that writes stories attacking the New England Patriots and covers up anything to do with the Red Sox. New Boston fans don't enjoy that. They don't think there's transparency with the Red Sox, and they think that there's a little bit of rivalry. And because of that, Patriot fans, which they're more of in this area, as of right now, because of what they've done the last 20 years, don't like this organization, and they think they should pay the price. So they will kick Cora. They want him banned for life. They will stick by Belichick. They will stick by everything the Patriots do, no matter what. And that's just the way it is here. Wow. Lou, I'm really surprised. Um, I I was there in 05 and 06, and I felt like the Red Sox were such an institution at that time, and people loved them. And the Patriots, you know, they'd already won three Super Bowls at that point, so – People love the Patriots, but to hear you say such a stark contrast between how they feel, I didn't realize how they evidently feel about the Red Sox. How long has that been going on? Well, I think, you know, it changed in 04 when you won the World Series, right? They were there. It was the pinnacle. You know, Boston Red Sox win the World Series, and then they were very successful after that, but they were... A lot of things, you know, I think that have changed it. You know, 2011, the collapse, the chicken and beer in the dugout. Um, there's a lot of things, you know, they changed Yaki Way and Jersey Street. There's just a lot of politics that have gotten involved. And again, I think one of the worst things John Henry one of the Red Sox did was buy the Boston Globe. He owns a newspaper. And I think that's a that's that the perception of that is not a good one. 
So there's been a lot of things PR-wise that the Red Sox have done. I think Brass in that organization has to face the reality that they're not the most popular team in this town. Other sport teams have won in this town. It's no longer a Red Sox town. First off, it's a winning town. Whoever wins, you follow. But I think it's been going on now for some time, and I would probably say, you know, 2011, 2012, in that area, the PR just hasn't been good for that organization. This is stunning to me. You have blown my mind because uh, we're talking to Lou Morloney, host of Ordway Morloney and Fourier, former Boston Red Sox infielder. I was there 04 to just about 2009. And I guess things have changed since I left town because when I was there, I had never seen a city so committed to one organization. When it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday night midweek game against the Rays, I saw old ladies, young kids all watching games and paying attention to everything. I had never seen devotion like that. Wow. I guess things have changed since I left town. I want to ask you, though, about the absence of of blame towards the players from Houston to Boston. We've heard a lot about AJ Hinch, Jeff Lunau, and now Alex Cora. We're not hearing a damn thing about Raphael Devers, Xander Bogarts, Andrew Benatendi, Jackie Bradley in Houston, Correa, Altuve, Bregman, Springer. Why is that? Shouldn't we be talking more about the players? These are grown men pulling off this scandal, cheating their opponents. Well, I, I would agree. This is like arresting the doctors in the steroid era and not criticizing the baseball players for taking it, right? Yeah. So part of it is MLB, Manfred sent out the memo saying, if this happens again, I'm coming after the GMs and managers, you know, and sitting there and an MLB PA saying, if you come after a player, I'm going to throw this memo in front of you and you're going to have a fight because you told us you were going after GMs and managers. But I would agree. This is, is somewhat of a scapegoat situation. Astros fans, Red Sox fans would rather be upset with Alex Cora than Rafi Devers. Red Sox fans, you know, Astros fans would rather be upset at A.J. Hinch, you know, for creating this than Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman. You know, we need evil and we need the good guys. So I think part of that is in play as well. You need a scapegoat. You need someone to blame. Don't blame the players. Blame the one guy we can get rid of. Um, so it is, it is amazing that, you know, these players benefit from it. They get completely left out of it. Um, meanwhile, all of them right now are probably sending messages to Alice Core and AJ Hinch saying, Hey, sorry, dude, you're a good guy. I really liked you. You know what I mean? They're just sort of sitting there and letting everybody wear it. Yeah. Um, Lou, how much do you think they benefited from it? I mean, I, I've heard the trash can thing. Like I can't, I can't quantify that. How much do you think those guys benefited? Can you put it in the numbers in some way? You know, it, it's I, I think what the Astros did, I think there's more of a benefit strictly because you got a catcher that doesn't realize he's getting preyed upon. You know, he's putting down one finger. You know, fastball, no one's on base. Fastball, curveball, changeup, no one's on base. When a guy's on second, there's a reason why it's multiple signs. There's a reason why teams change signs. You know, so when you're not realizing it and you're banging the barrel – Although I would still say come postseason, I don't know if you guys have been to a playoff game or not, but when your team is hitting, you tell me whether you can hear a barrel or not. I think it's impossible. So, But still, this is what they were doing. You heard the videos. With a man on second base, I don't think people realize how hard it is to steal signs, especially if you're dealing with a team that's somewhat aware and somewhat professional. 
you know, after the third, fourth pitch of a guy on second base, if we think they're there too long, you switch to signs. Now the guy's on an island. As a hitter, you better be damn sure you know what the pitch is if you're going to relay it to me. Because if you tell me it's a curveball and it's a fastball at my chin, then we're going to have a problem. And I'm never going to listen to you ever again. So in that report, like they said, there were some Astros guys that said, you know, it's too confusing. I don't want to know it. So I, I could see where some guys didn't want anything to do with it. But when the man's on second base, it really is hard to determine what the right sign is. you got to wait a pitch or two to make sure you've got it. By the time you've got it in that third pitch, you might give him a pitch. And by the fourth pitch, the catcher's sitting there saying, you know, one, two. You know, we'll go back to the second sign, the third sign. Outs plus one, strikes plus one, follow the two. And as a guy at second base, you have no clue. So it's it's difficult, which, t- which brings you to the whole fact of how stupid this really was. How much did you really benefit from this, and was it all worth it? Talking to Lou Merloni, former Red Sox infielder, host of Ordway, Merloni, and Fourier. We talked to Brad Lidge yesterday, former Phillies World Series champ and Astros pitcher himself. He said in his estimation between five and ten other teams at the time we're also using some form of technology to steal signs. Would you agree with that? Where, where would you put that number? It would be just pure speculation. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's hard to believe, you know, that other, other teams aren't doing it. Um, but it would be pure speculation. You know, I mean, it's, it's there's so much. We live in an era where now it's about analytics. And you're looking for the casino edge, you know, the small edge. I, I don't. No, that he's going to hit the ball here every single time, but the probability is I'm going to increase my probability and my advantages, and I'm going to put a guy there and everything else. So it's hard to believe that teams aren't sitting there saying, well, what else? Uh, what other edges can we get? Let's look on the fringes. Let's figure this thing out. Um, it's just always looking for an edge. This has been going on in baseball. It's been going on in sports all the time. How can I gain an advantage in this thing? So, you know, I go back. We, we were playing sound the other day with the Red Sox. I know Carlos Beltran was one of the names, which is very interesting you know, and what the Mets do here moving forward. And Cora had said that one of the biggest acquisitions for the Yankees last year was Carlos Beltran. He got into it as far as, you know, he pays attention to details. He knows how it works. I know how it works. We got to shore some things up. We're tipping pitches, our sign sequence, you know, and then now he's with the Mets. So it's obviously he's not going to bring this thing here with the New York Mets, but all it takes is a couple of guys that come out that are scorned, that aren't happy, that are a different organization. And next thing you know, it's another organization that's going through this as well. One final question. It's one we started our program with to my, to my surprise, and, and, and this will surprise you. So you're going to have to take a minute to let it marinate probably. Ross right. Tucker started this program, Lou, by saying uh, the one television character he just might punch in the face if he saw out there on the street is David Schwimmer, Ross from Friends, because Ross ruined the name Ross for Ross Tucker. <laughs> Is there another character, Lou, whether it's television or film? I don't know if you're a violent guy like Ross Tucker and you Mm -hmm. might not punch him in the face, but is there someone you might yell at, you might at least push physically or verbally Mm. accost if you saw them in public? Oh, man. So that's a tough one. That's a tough one. I think, you know, listen, I like, you know, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. You know, I, I like them a lot. So I, I do. And even though I had some issues maybe with Ben in the past, but that's in the past. But after <laughs> Goodwill Hunting, it's like the accent that was a little bit too much. You know what I mean? That's one of those things where I think it'd probably be Ben. I think he knows why. We've had some issues. But still, you know, the accent was so bad, especially in the batting cage scene when it's like, oh, we're going to mess with some Harvard kids. It was just it, it made everybody just 
look worse than we already oh, than we already sound. To be honest with you, <laughs> that's a good one. Time to check in with our good friends at Pro Football Focus. George Cherubri joining us on Hump Day. George, good to see you, my friend. Um, I want to get into real quickly. Mr. Luke Keekley, Luke, who hangs it up yesterday <laughs> at age 28, a little perspective on just how good he was in just eight years in the NFL. He was fantastic. I mean, he was the most valuable linebacker using PFF war that uh, we've seen in the PFF era. So uh, that gives you a sense of just how good he was in only eight years. Obviously, the PFF era goes back 15. So. Um, he was tremendous. He was the highest graded linebacker of the past decade. And I think the way that he did it, you know, he wasn't just a physical guy, right? He played coverage as well as any linebacker. And so he was able to make a huge impact even in today's NFL at the linebacker position. Uh, it's sad to see him go, obviously, but man, it was, it's, it was great to watch him play while he was there. George, you mentioned PFF war. I know this is relatively new for you guys. Can you explain for our listeners exactly what it is and how you guys are coming at that number? Yeah. So if you think about the PFF grade, the PFF grade is within a position, right? So I would look at uh, all quarterback grades and I could say, okay, this, these are the you know, five best quarterbacks. But how do I compare a quarterback that grades 95 with a defensive interior player or a cornerback that, that grades at a 95? That's a really valuable or tough question to answer, but it's also a lot of value within that answer because I want to know just how much more valuable is a quarterback um, that, that grades that high, like Pat Mahomes versus Aaron Donald, you know, which one is actually more valuable. And so we put that into a currency that everyone can understand, which is wins above a replacement level player. How many wins are you gaining by having this player on your team above having a guy that you could pick up off the practice squad in, in his place? And it's all, it's all still built off of how well a player grades, um, but it's put into a, a mathematically rigorous uh, algorithm that then translated, it, uh, translates it into uh, a currency that we can all understand, which is wins. Um, and it allows you to compare in between positions, across positions, which uh, is really something that we have not been able to do in football yet. I mean, you do this in baseball all the time, um, but it is a first of its kind for football. Get a lot of data, all the best stuff on pff.com. Got to check them out right now. Talking to George Taruri from Pro Football Focus. And you guys have an excellent breakdown on the debate raging through college sports. It's if they came out right now, Trevor Lawrence or Joe Burrow, who is the best quarterback right now and who would go number one in your estimation and why? It's got to be Joe Burrow. Uh, he has answered every single question. And the, the big one for me really is age and environment. So Joe Brady obviously created a really nice offensive environment there at LSU. They had a ton of playmakers. But the same is true at Clemson, right? I mean, they had some fantastic playmakers. They had a wonderful environment for Trevor Lawrence to perform in. And he did not perform as well. Joe Burrow has been more accurate at each level of the field. Um, and that is just something that you can't ignore. You can't just all of a sudden go with he's younger, he's more talented. I can project him a little bit better three years down the road. You have to look at what they produce so far. And so far, that's that's Joe Burrow. And there really isn't a question in two years. We there's a chance we're saying something differently. But right now, if you had to project him forward, uh, it's Joe Burrow. So, George, you kind of hinted at this, but 
specifically the age component of it, you guys have been doing this for a while now. Is there enough data to suggest how much a player in general and maybe a quarterback in particular progresses over their age 20 to age 23 seasons to say, okay, Burroughs grades a 95, Lawrence is a 90, but based on what other quarterbacks do, Lawrence should be a 96 by the time he's 23. <laughs> yeah, we build that in. So we have a, a system that projects from college to the pro level. Uh, you know, what do you expect this guy to be at the pro level in, you know, in three years and four years at the end of his rookie contract, whatever it is. And that is one of the variables that we take into consideration. But it's not as important as all of the other things, right? How freaking good is this guy, right? Uh, how do you perform from a clean pocket? Um, how did he throw the ball at the intermediate level? When he made throws that you see at the NFL level, how did he perform on those throws? Those are all so much more important. So you can't just, it's not going to be that big of a jump, right? Um, it definitely matters and it helps. Um, it, it helps you certainly for that second contract. But here's the thing with the quarterback position. It's way less valuable at the quarterback position where guys are playing for 20 years. At running back, at wide receiver, at linebacker, we just talked about Luke Keekley. Their careers are so much shorter that age definitely does matter because when you sign them to that second contract, you know, are you getting them for their prime or not? At the quarterback position, it's way less of a, of a question mark. This is the stuff you get with the PFF subscription. Check them out. Talking to George Taruri, uh, another quarterback getting a lot of attention and for good reason, of course, is Tua Tagovailoa and some interesting news from Mike Rodak that Tua expects to be healthy and throw for NFL teams by April, a huge surprise out of the camp oh. for Tua. Um, where do you expect him to go? Will he even be around at number seven when Carolina, a lot of talk about them wanting him. Can he even make it beyond the top five? I, I can't imagine so. Um, let me put it this way. If you do not have a top 10 quarterback, you should be drafting a quarterback. Like, I just, I don't know how else to put that because you're not a contender unless you are in, unless you can get a top 10 quarterback performance out of your team, um, or out of, out of that guy. Look at the Niners, for example, right? Jimmy G's mm -hmm. right on that cusp. They have Kyle Shanahan. They have great offense and that's why they've gotten where they've gotten. So if he makes it past five, I would be absolutely stunned. I think, and this is a bold claim, I don't think they're going to do it, but the Redskins should be thinking about him at two because they don't know anything about Dwayne Haskins yet. And the only thing that can get you to that next level is a great quarterback. So why not take shots at quarterback? I would be stunned if he makes it to seven. Um, there's no way he makes it past Miami. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? 
Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. We start this half hour with a discussion of the Democratic presidential debate last night. The field continues to narrow. It was massive. What do we have? 20-plus candidates, and now we're down to six. A lot has been made of the fact that there is no minority representation on that stage. That is certainly unfortunate, but it is what it is. Clearly, it is the voters who are deciding this. It is not the networks. It is about who is raising money. It is about who is getting the numbers. And Ross Tucker, it was about one question last night. It was the battle of the sexes always raging in sports, in politics, in every office building in the country. And the question was, can a woman be elected president of the United States? That question arises because a report from CNN suggests that Bernie Sanders told Elizabeth Warren that he didn't think a woman could be elected president. What do you say, sir? Uh, number one, I say very little about politics. That's that's number one, as you know. <laughs> But number two, I'm a little confused because, I mean, didn't Hillary Clinton get like that close to winning? Like, I I don't know why he would say that if Hillary Clinton didn't have that whole email scandal or whatever, she would have won, I think. So I, I don't understand. I'm sure I'm missing something and you'll enlighten me right now, but as a... Uh, very impartial, apolitical observer, I would say I don't really understand it because Hillary Clinton almost won, arguably should have won if there was no scandal or the media attention hadn't been so focused on her emails or whatever. She probably yep. would have won. So I don't get it. Well, I'm a numbers guy, and let's not forget, she did win in many regards, more than two million more popular votes than Donald Trump had. If it weren't for this system we have called the Electoral College, she would be President Hillary Clinton at this moment. But I do see what Bernie was trying to, to discuss or try to get out there in the open. And I don't think Bernie Sanders and I look, I'll just be honest right here. I would never in a fucking million years vote for Bernie Sanders. I think the economy <laughs> would would explode and would step off the edge of a cliff. I don't think we can afford any of his policy proposals. But sorry to weigh in with my politics there. I do think there is an issue with women running in politics in general. And I see it in my own home. I see it out there in my community. Women are much tougher on women than are men. I don't think it's because of sexism. I think it's women are much harder on female politicians than they are on men. We talk a lot about experience with women and we don't do that with men. Um, I think I hear women all over town say, oh, she seems nasty to me. She seems cold or rigid. You don't hear those things said about men. They're professional. They're tough. They're businesslike. Women are nasty. Women are bitchy. Men, women are, are harsh and so, uh, and that's judged by women. I think it is going to be very, very difficult for a woman to win the electoral college. I do think it'll happen. I think Nikki Haley has a distinct 
shot at becoming a president sometime in the next 12 or 16 years, the former South Carolina governor, who will at some point want run as a Republican. Um, so, yeah, do you see that ever? I know you don't get into politics a lot, but do you think women are just tougher judges on women altogether? Uh, so, first of all, there's no question about that. I totally agree on that. And number two, there will be a woman president. I mean, I don't know when it'll be, but no there question. will be a woman president at some point, And I would guess in the not too distant future. Uh, but yes, I do see it. You know, I guess I'm surprised by two things, Dave. I am surprised that women are as hard on other women like Hillary Clinton, for example, as they are. And I'm also surprised, frankly, that women are as forgiving towards men like Donald Trump in some instances as they are. You know, not to get too far down the line, but I guess I thought when, when the audio came out where Donald Trump said he would grab her by the, you know what? Yeah. I guess I thought that that would be like a huge red flag for women, like just disgusting. I could never vote for him. But some of the women I spoke to, it didn't bother him as much as I thought it would. I was kind of surprised. Incredibly emotional announcement for Luke Keekley, one of the all-time greats and follows in a long line of what some would call early retirements. Andrew Luck at 29, Gronk at 29, Patrick Willis at 30, Cam Chancellor at 30, Calvin Johnson at 30. How difficult was that decision for Luke? How will you remember him, Ross? Well, obviously, it was very, very difficult. And, uh, you know, watching that video and listening to him, I could feel that, Dave. I could feel that for him, and I could feel that for me. You know, I can put myself in his shoes. Mine was a little bit different because, number one, I don't think any NFL teams would have wanted me anymore anyway. Number two, I didn't really want to have a neck surgery to try to keep playing football. But I was still very, very upset when football was over, although strangely a little bit relieved on some level. But for Luke, he's still so good. He's still playing at such a high level and he loves it. So it's like, um, and you can appreciate this, Dave. It's like breaking up with your first love and you're never going to see him again. And it's hard to explain that, right? Like, you know, football was my first love. And I loved it, frankly, more than any girl other than my wife, if I'm being honest. <laughs> I mean, I mean, even the other girls I told him I loved them, I like football more than I like them. But um, <laughs> my point is, is like, it's a really hard thing to break up with that person, even though you don't have to. He didn't have to make this decision, but... 
I'm sure he's thought about it a lot, talked with his girlfriend, talked with his brothers, talked with his family, and just thought, you know what? Now is the right time. And personally, Dave, any guy like Calvin Johnson, Patrick Willis, Luke Keekley, Rob Gronkowski on some level that makes this decision, I applaud. And I think this is or on some level should be the new template. You play your rookie contract. You get the big second contract. You play several years of that, and then you get out. And then you get out before you do more damage to your body and more damage to your brain. Andrew Luck's another one. Luke Keekley has made $63 million. He's 28 years old. He is giving himself the best opportunity to live a healthy life, the rest of his life, and a higher quality of life. And I applaud him for it. It was obviously a very difficult decision, but it's one, frankly, that anybody that cares about him, I don't know him well enough to say that, but if he were my brother, Dave, this is the decision that I would be hopeful he made. And I would have been talking to him about this the last couple of years, frankly. And I would say the same thing to JJ Watt, really anybody that's made life altering money from this game, I think should consider stepping away every year. So that was very well said. And I'm curious your, your reaction because a, a friend who is a Charlotte, North Carolina resident texted me in, initially afterwards and said, this is alarm bells for the NFL. This is a really bad day for the league. He thinks it represents a decline of the sport in the future. I said to him, I do understand the youth participation is dropped almost across the board, across the country. But I don't think this is actually bad for the NFL in the long term as far as a business model. Look at the television ratings right now. I don't think it's going to hurt the game that you guys, you have guys play six, seven, eight, ten years and then step away in the eyes of some early. Do you think this is bad for the game in the long term? No, I don't. Um, I understand what your friend's saying. But Keekley in particular has had a lot of concussions. So I think what's more alarming would be if people chose not to play college football or if college football players chose not to play in the NFL. But grown men who made $63 million saying, you know what, I don't need this anymore and moving on. That's been happening since Jim Brown retired when he was 30. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. now back then it was just for orthopedic issues, but this has been happening for a while. I think Chris Borland is more concerning than Patrick Willis, Calvin Johnson, Luke Keekley, because as great as Luke Keekley is, and as much as we love him, we won't talk about him once next season. No one will say 
man, where's Luke Keekley? I wish Luke, it just, it just keeps going. The game just keeps going. Mm-hmm. You know, Antonio Brown didn't play this year, Dave. He's arguably the best receiver in the league. He didn't play. Guess what? Ratings were up across the board. Nobody really missed him. I mean, maybe the Steelers did a little bit or the Raiders or the Patriots, but you get my point. If Antonio Brown wasn't a lunatic on social media, we wouldn't even talk about him. We wouldn't even think about the fact he's not playing anymore. It's truly incredible. The NFL is a freight train on the tracks. And no matter who jumps off, the train just keeps going. It doesn't care who gets off, when you get off, or why you get off. It just keeps going. Agree with that wholeheartedly. I think it will not hurt the game long term, but we will see because those youth participation numbers are down across the country. Now, there's another question that immediately struck me after Luke Keekley called it a career, and it's how do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered for who you are as a person or what you did professionally? And this is a question that I wrestle with just about each and every day of my life, and probably a lot of you do out there as well. Should you put your emphasis on your career or how you are at home? Can you balance both? Can you be remembered as both a wonderful human being and as a hardworking, successful professional? Well, for Luke Keekley, clearly that answer is absolutely yes. Listen to some of these descriptions. Christian McCaffrey, not just the best player I've ever seen, but the best person I've ever met. Torrey Smith called him one of the best players that I've ever seen and the greatest human I've met. Jonathan Stewart, one of the most pure and authentic people I've met. He was a great teammate and friend. Thomas Davis, best teammate I've ever had on any level. Derek Anderson, one of the best humans, friend, teammate anyone could ever want. That is all any player or any human being should want in terms of what their legacy is. We all know he's a great football player. He's a Hall of Famer, hopefully on the first ballot, if that distinction matters. It certainly made me think about my own legacy and what is more important at the end of the day, how you are remembered as a human being. I think it was a bit of a wake-up call for me, honestly, Ross. I don't know about for other people, but what matters most to you? Do you ever wrestle with that in terms of what people will remember you as a great human or or would you rather value your professional success over personal? I think, um, I think when I, when people remember me, I just want them to think probably the best looking 320 pound guy I've ever seen. (laughs) Probably the, you know, really should have been a plus, a plus size model for years. Now, you know what? It's funny because either today or tomorrow, we're going to talk about Arthur Smith, the offensive coordinator for the Titans. But there is no question, Dave, what really matters is, in my mind, what your friends and family think about you, right? Like my mom, what she thinks of me as a son, what my wife thinks of me as a husband what my kids think of me as a dad, that is so much more important than anything else in life. 
it's not even worth talking about. Do I do I want people, you know, to to think I to to enjoy me on on the radio and television? Sure. Do I want people to appreciate, you know, how hard I played and what I was able to do football? Sure. And and really, we talk with our daughters all the time. The most important thing to us is that you are kind and that you are a good person. And mm. I'd like to think that I am. I certainly hope that people feel that way about me. But I don't know, Dave. I mean, sometimes like I look at my father-in-law. He's unbelievable. He's like a he's like a top five human being I've ever met. And so, you know, I, I'm just not that nice. <laughs> like I'm trying, but I'm not that unselfish. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm trying to yeah. be the best I can, but, um, it's incredible to hear what people said about yeah. Luke. I mean, I, I was with a teammate yesterday and the first thing he said to the guy I was talking to was Ross is the dirtiest guy I ever played against. So <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking when I retired or like if I retired now with social media, I'm wondering what guys would say. There's Ross, the dirtiest son of a bitch I ever played with. (laughs) (laughs) On your tombstone, my friend. I think a lot of people chase professional success. Certainly a lot of people I know, and they don't think enough about how they will be remembered personally Luke Keekley was a wake-up call to me that you can be remembered as both a tremendous professional and a wonderful human being, that you can concentrate on the professional and the personal. You might not be a Hall of Famer and remembered as the greatest teammate at any level, but a bit of a wake-up call for all of us, no matter what our profession is, how do you want to be remembered? When it's all said and done, how do they remember him in Charlotte, North Carolina? Let's quickly listen to our friends at WFNZ on their reaction to the retirement of Luke. I was not expecting to have to do this show uh, in 2020. It is, I mean, in some ways good that, you know, we're doing this and Luke is able to step away from the game and not have this game destroy you know his ability to enjoy life moving forward but it's also sad as a panther fan i'm sure y'all are feeling the same thing we're never going to get to see him play again so i just want to say it's been like 10 to 11 hours i'm already on the third stage of grief um (laughs) i've been i've been through the denials i'm mad as hell and like i'm trying to bargain like maybe Maybe Tepper can can pay him more money, or maybe he'll come back if like it takes a year off. Or I'm in the bargaining stage right now. I my wife is laughing at me because I shed a tear. I just I feel like a tilted lover, and I don't understand. Man, he is truly one of the great middle linebackers of all time. He is on the short list, in my opinion. It's kind of a sad day. Um, I I uh, gosh, you know, I don't know how to know what to say. I think I do feel like that. Barry Sanders, like a Jim Brown, you know, what what could have been? I think he's the best player ever to play for our Carolina uh, I agree with you on that. I thought about this, Bone, like, you know, if there was something that I couldn't do radio anymore, how much it would kill me. I love doing this. Just imagine if you have something you love and you you have to, for the betterment of yourself, you have to walk away from it. That's hard, man. So what he's going through has to be really hard. 
this whole radio station today is going to be bells and whistles and celebrating you, my man, because I think you're the best Panther ever. So our friends at WFNZ in Charlotte, North Carolina, get them anytime on the radio.com app. Derrick Henry, 180 yards plus in three straight games on the road against Houston at New England at Baltimore. Just imagine what this guy was like to stop as a high school running back. It's a hump day home and home. We're brought to you by Zip Recruiter. Check them out. ZipRecruiter.com slash enter the smartest way to hire. I'm Dave Briggs in Connecticut. Ross Tucker's in Pennsylvania. And our good friend Justin Barney is in Jacksonville, Florida. He is the sports editor at WJXT who covered Derrick Henry as a high school running back. Justin, thanks for being with us. How would you describe Derrick Henry, this freak of nature, 6'3", 245, 4540, as a high school running back? As dominant as he is in the NFL, if you can believe that, uh, he was on, you know, from a high school level. He carried the ball 462 times as a senior, 462 times, and 462 times opposing defenses knew he was coming, and they still could not stop him. Uh, you know, the thing about Derek is you see him in the NFL. They said he was too slow to play the position. You've seen that he's not uh, too slow to play the position against NFL caliber players. He was like that again in, in high school, just on a scale you cannot imagine. You know, the guys he's playing against is bigger than his offensive lineman, bigger than his fullback. I don't think there was a player on his line that was uh, even remotely the same size as him. So what we're seeing now in the, on you know the big stage of the NFL, what we saw at Alabama, Derek was was even better than that in high school, as you can imagine. You know, high school guys, um, at, at the, the Blue Blood programs have guys, you know, comparable to Derek's size, you know, the 6'2", uh, the 6'3", six six guys. But those are those are not guys you see on a daily basis. And you know, the guys Derek ran against, I mean, a lot of the times they were small guys. A lot of times they were uh, guys his size, you know, elite five-star players, and they still had trouble bringing him down. Um, just a dominant force of uh, force of nature. I covered Tim Tebow in high school. And I liken Tim and Derek to what they did for their positions as a, as revolutionary. And um, you know, Derek's just fascinating to cover in high school. Great to deal with, great to talk to, and uh, great to be a front row seat to history we had. You know, Justin, it's interesting. I was reading one of your stories from when Derek was a senior. And it's crazy because some of the same concerns about his upright running style lack of lateral agility that people had when he was in college coming to the NFL, they had even back in high school. It's kind of, it seems laughable now that there were concerns that he might not even be able to cut it in college. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's funny. I had a uh, conversation with his coach yesterday from high school, Bobby Ramsey. And he said, you know, it was really, um, it really disappointing. And, and for Derek, I mean, he took it hard, you know, that colleges wanted to kind of flip him, flip his position from the, uh, running back to defensive end. And Derek has always, I mean, through, through Pop Warner, through middle school, he was always a running back. So it it really um, turned him off, alienated him against some coaches in colleges because, you know, they wanted him to do something that was unnatural to him at the next level. And he said, you know, he's shown throughout his career that he could do this at a high level. I mean, he broke a record that was 59 years old in high school football, um, maybe the most sacred record of all time, um, Ken Hall's rushing record. And, you know, there were questions that he still could not do it. And, you know, I think the knock on Derek was that he played a weak schedule. They, they feasted on small teams and bad teams. And that, 
that is uh, totally against the norm. I mean, uh, he played Buford, nationally ranked Buford team on TV as a as an underclassman. You know, had a had a game there that was his closest game to to being held under 100 yards, and he had I believe like an 85 yard touchdown late in that game um, against a team that is just a, an Atlanta powerhouse. And you know, Yuli at the time is still a a building and rising program, and um, I think it I think it irked Derek to be listed as um, I think in ESPN recruiting. Uh, rankings had him listed as an athlete. And I asked him before back then, mm-hmm. um, you know, Derek, you're an athlete. And he said, what is an athlete? What is an athlete? I don't know what an athlete is. I mean, I'm a running back. I was born to play that position. That's what I'm going to be at the next level. And, you know, a lot of the colleges that came recruit him, I talked when I talked to Bobby yesterday, I asked him, I said, what schools were the ones that, that wanted him to play running back? And he said, four out of five. So the three schools that Derek Henry chose from on um, when he announced his decision uh, on ESPNU back in um, back in the day, they got Alabama. He had Tennessee, he had Georgia, and he had Alabama. And those are basically the, the only three schools, maybe one more, that were going to allow him to play offense in, in college. So, you know, the Notre Dames, the Floridas, the Miamis, um, those guys all wanted him as as a linebacker, as a defensive end. Um, so I think that, you know, I think that goes maybe to poor scouting or, or a guy who did not fit that norm of that shifty, small running back. You know, at the time, Kelvin Taylor – at Bell Glades, Glades Day was um, the de facto back who was on that running that uh, that that track to beat Ken Hall's record. Derek and Kelvin played head to head the senior year, and Derek ran for six touchdowns, um, and Kelvin ran for one. So, I think it you know, every opportunity that he had was about proving that he could play running back at um, at the next level. And again, he has done nothing. If you saw him play in high school, nothing that he is doing now is surprising you. I think it's. Um, it's a surprise. Again, he's a big guy and people think that he runs too rigid. He runs too upright. Um, but man, he has just done it time and again against good competition in, in high school, college, and certainly the NFL. Joe Brady deserves and gets a lot of credit for what he did at LSU. What I think is interesting though, is I don't know how much of Joe Brady's success or how much of LSU's success was Joe Burrow was Joe Brady? Was Steve Emsinger? Like, it's hard to really know, right? So I find that interesting to see that they're in a situation where Matt Rule evidently felt like it was primarily Joe Brady. And guess what? LSU did too. Otherwise, they wouldn't have offered him $3 million. So they must know behind the scenes that Brady is the brains. Brady's the guru. Well, I'll tell you what, you want some backup for that? Paul Feinbaum for ESPN covers the SEC. You won't believe this evaluation of the importance of Joe Brady, not just on the LSU program, but of the Heisman Trophy winning campaign of Joe Burrow. This is what Feinbaum told our friends at WFNZ prior to the hire of Joe Brady. This is the description of the importance of a 30-year-old who was not calling plays. From what you've seen in the one year in LSU, do you think this is a guy who moving fast would behoove him and that he could have immediate success jumping back to the NFL? I would. Uh, you know, there, there, there was two schools of thought. Uh, take the offer from, from Carolina or gamble and replicate this next year and then have the choice of, of any head coaching position. But quite frankly, I don't think it's a gamble at all. I would leave. Uh, and I think he's gettable. I mean, I know the reports of the extension are out there, but let me also tell you that 
you know, the kind of money that they'll be paying him is ridiculously low for what he is capable of doing. Without Joe Brady, they are not celebrating the national championship. And quite frankly, I don't think Joe Burrow is the Heisman winner or the uh, presumptive number one pick in the draft. So, I mean, I think that goes without saying. Ross, I want your reaction to that on WFNZ from Paul Feinbaum. Again, that LSU would not be national champions, that Joe Burrow would not be a Heisman Trophy winner and would not be the presumptive number one pick if it weren't for a 30-year-old who was not calling plays. Yeah, well, I mean, Feinbaum is very connected to the SEC in particular and probably knows. I mean, let's be honest, Dave. I'll go back to what I said a couple minutes ago. Matt Rule could hire a lot of people to be his offensive coordinator. The fact that he's hiring... Joe Brady tells you that he agrees with Paul Feinbaum. He thinks that Joe Brady was the biggest reason for Joe Burrow's success. Otherwise, he wouldn't have hired him for the Carolina job. And I think LSU feels that way with the money they offered him. And I don't know about the play calling or whatever. I think that's weird, though. Like, if he wasn't calling plays, what what did he do that was so great? Like, I... As a former football player, I I would need a little bit more information. If he's not calling the plays, what is he designing that's so great? Hi, everyone. This is Dave Briggs. Thanks for listening to the Home and Home Podcast. Remember, you can watch or listen live every day from 8.30 to 10.30 a.m. exclusively on the Radio.com app or at Radio.com slash home. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.